What is biohacking? Is the ketogenic diet really something that is that beneficial? Well, Ben Azadi has a lot of thoughts around those topics, and as a podcast host and content creator, he has talked to so many experts that don't always agree. In our conversation, we have a great deal of things that uh, we're trying to get down to the truth of. So enjoy Mr. Keto Camp. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a blue zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Ben, the keto camp guy. So I love what you do, brother. I've been, uh, you know, following along with your work for a while. I appreciate you taking the time to help, you know, clear some things. I've got lots of questions. I'm always learning. And uh, if you would introduce yourself and tell us how, how you got to be the keto camp guy. Yeah. Well, thanks, Logan. Love your mission too. You shared so beautifully with me before we hit record here. I love what you're up to. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, keto camp guy. Yeah. So now, you know, definitely I'm known as the keto camp guy to your point, but, uh, growing up here in America, as you know, processed food, standard American diet. I was very unhealthy as a young kid growing up here in Miami, Florida, where I still currently live. And, uh, you know, I, my, I was a result of my environment. My environment was a very toxic environment. My mom worked at Kentucky fried chicken. She would bring me home Kentucky fried chicken, I hung out with friends that were doing bad things and drugs. So I ended up, you know, doing the same because you become your environment. So my, my lifestyle as a kid was very unhealthy, physically overweight and obese, also mentally overweight and obese, really bad addictions to video games and drugs and sugar and food, et cetera. I was, uh, I was filling this void with uh, numbing myself because I was not clear on any goals. I didn't really have any values. So my environment kind of created the values for me. And then when I turned 23 years old in 2007, I was in a really uh, dark place in my life. At this point, I was a young man who weighed 250 pounds. I was physically obese. I was mentally obese as well. I was looking on the internet for ways to end my life because I was tired of uh, being in pain every single day. And I would have went through with it, Logan, if it wasn't for my mom. Now, my mom didn't know I was going through this, but every every time I explored suicide, the first thought was, what about your mom? Like your mom would have to suffer so much and I didn't want to cause that pain for her. So it prevented me from pursuing it. So my mom didn't know this was going on. This is a conversation just in my head, but it stopped me from pursuing it. So I knew I had to figure things out. Started to get into books. I started to read authors like Dr. Wayne Dyer, who I still read to this day, incredible guy, He's passed on now, but his work lives on forever. And he would say things in his books and his videos that would just light me up like, hey, if you keep blaming other people for your problems, you would have to hire a psychiatrist for the rest of the world in order for you to get better. <laughs> so he would say things like that, like, hey, when life squeezes you, what comes out 
is what's inside. Similar to when you squeeze an orange, what comes out is orange juice. Why? Because that's what's inside, right? So life was squeezing me and that pressure, what came out was the, the, the what was inside. So that was my attitude, my thoughts, my feelings and actions. So I knew if I started to change that, when life squeezed me, what would come out would be something else. So I just took responsibility. I started moving my body. I started eating real food. And nine months later, I lost 80 pounds. I went from 34% body fat to 6% body fat. I went from size 38 waist to size 30 waist. Finally achieved a physical six pack at that point. But most importantly, a mental six pack. Uh, I believe that is more important. And that was my entryway, Logan, into the health and wellness space. That took place in 2008, that transformation. So I've been in the health space for 16 plus years, written four books. Uh, I'm writing a new book right now. And uh, Keto Camp developed in 2018, but I got into keto in 2013. And we could talk more about that. I love that. No, thanks for thanks for sharing, Ben. I, I didn't realize that you know the depth of of your story. It's a pretty pretty powerful, brother. So thanks. what what really got your shift on the diet side? What did you you first get drawn to keto? So when I lost the weight, Logan, I was fit, but I was one of those fit sick people meaning I, I didn't feel healthy. So I still had digestive issues. Even though I had six-pack abs, I still have digestive issues. I had brain fog. I was still inflamed, but I look good, right? And that, a lot of people <laughs> kind of look like that. They might be looking good on the outside, inflamed on the inside. That was the case for me. So I was still exploring at that point, how do I achieve health? How do I achieve perfect health, as I call it? How do I, how do I feel really good? Not just look good, but feel good. So, you know, I tried different approaches. Um, one of those approaches was actually a vegan diet, a plant-based diet. And this is in 2012, where I got fully duped by the vegan movement, which is stronger now than ever before. And I went vegan, plant-based for 15 months. And uh, it really did a number on my health in a bad way. Uh, I, at this time, I owned a CrossFit gym here in Miami, and I was really... Uh, difficult working out and it just destroyed the hormones. So 15 months into it, I'm like, I got to stop this. I got to do lab work. The lab work verified how I felt, which was awful. And then I said, I got to find something else. So at that point, this is now 2013, I started doing more research and then I got into the ketogenic diet, uh, intermittent fasting. And I got into the work of like uh, Eric Westman and Mark Sisson and Dr. Daniel Pompa. And, you know, one of the few people that were talking about it early, early on, Jeff Volek, et cetera. And it made a lot of sense to me that keto is this metabolic process that we're all designed to use. There's nothing new about it. It's just nuanced or maybe new to some people, but it's simply a metabolic process, the process of burning fat where your ketones use those fats, excuse me, your liver use those fats and then produces ketones. All this made sense to me. So I went full in with keto, paired it with intermittent fasting and really my, my health started to elevate to a level that I hadn't experienced before. I fell in love with the way I felt. And then I just started teaching it because I was uh, I just loved the way I felt. So I had my like business partner do it. I had all the 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 I was trying to get all the members at my gym to do it, but they didn't really CrossFit and keto and fasting kind of like are the opposite. So in the beginning it was challenging, but I was hosting these seminars back then, teaching people about keto and fasting. Some people loved it. Some people were like, I'm gonna lose my gains. But yeah, dude, that's when it all started, 2013, 2014 or so. You never really know what's going to spark that uh, that trail, that that rabbit trail. And for me, the first time I started really paying attention, uh, 
to to the diet and and even ketogenic aspects was uh, actually Dave Asprey. Asprey's had a massive impact on me very early on uh, when he had Dr. Gundry come on, and then I got into the plant paradox, uh, and then he had mentioned. Uh, insulin potentiated chemotherapy, and so that was that was very early on uh, with Lander's uh, cancer journey, and so that led me towards saying, if if keto keto, uh, you know, a, a fasting state has a positive benefit on how well the chemo works. We need to understand this. And so as I asked oncologists and stuff, it was just like, no, that doesn't that's that's not really what helps, and so. I just didn't accept that. And so just kept diving in and got into like Walter Longo's work. And that's where, you know, all of it just kind of started coming to a head that maybe this uh, nutrition that we are being told isn't quite right. So the vegan experience, what can you go into a little bit more on that, on what what were those those negatives that you experienced? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to because I think it'll be relevant, especially with this big vegan agenda that we see these days. And to your point, Logan, yeah, Asprey was one of those influential people as well with the Bulletproof Diet. He was one of the original guys talking about things like lectins and anti-nutrients. Um, Stephen Gundry as well. He's kind of it's Gundry's kind of like the original, like the godfather of the carnivore diet. He was speaking about it before guys like Saladino and others were talking about it. But uh, the vegan experiment, yeah, you know, in the beginning, that shift towards a plant-based diet actually benefited from that shift in the beginning, the first few weeks or so. I I actually noticed a difference. I was eating more whole foods. You know, any shift in diet, you typically get a benefit because what it does, it increases the diversity in the gut. Then you hit this vegan wall typically. And depending on your genetics and different factors, it could be 30 days in, it could be three months in. Or even in some cases, it could be three years in, right? Depends on how big your stress bucket is or how full it, it is, I should say. So for me, it was probably like six or eight weeks in that I started to notice a decline. But I had put myself so deep in this dogmatic box of a vegan diet, telling all my friends and family members like they're killing themselves and killing the world by eating animals and drinking milk and eating meat. Like how dare you? Like I was preaching it. And I put myself in this really dogmatic box. So it's hard to get out of that when you're there. So I stuck with it, even though I knew that uh, it wasn't working for me. So some of the things that I noticed is that my workout recovery was now starting to take two, three, sometimes four days, excessive soreness. soreness. And that's a result really of my mitochondria not adapting to the stressor of working out. But that was never the case before that. It, the vegan diet caused my mitochondria not to adapt that well. So a decrease in mitochondrial performance, a decrease in energy levels, especially throughout the day. I did not have stable energy levels with the vegan diet. I ate a lot of um, anti-nutrients, so it was affecting my gut in a negative way, creating joint pain in a negative way. I didn't know anything about anti-nutrients at this point of my um, career. But definitely was a problem back then. I was eating a lot of high oxalate foods, high lectin foods, a lot of soy, which we know is loaded with GMOs. So I was doing a lot of damage to myself unknowingly. Um, And it wasn't until 15 months into that I said, I got to make a change. That's when I did the lab work. And thankfully, the lab work verified how I felt. But that's not always the case. Sometimes lab work could take years to catch up, just to keep that in mind. But always pay attention to your body. Lab work is okay. It's great to kind of verify things, but how you feel that intuition is the most important thing. 
Yeah, that's uh, kind of a common theme with those that are are into the carnivore too. Is like I think the first step of really playing with carnivore is going vegan. Uh, that seems to be a reoccurring theme. And so for me, I read the you know the China study with uh, early on in the, in the cancer, and it was you know meat causes cancer, dairy causes cancer, and so uh, you know flipped completely from that, and it goes back to what I was saying about Asprey, uh, kind of the rabbit trails he sent me down. What you you brought up was mitochondria so ben that's that's where just kind of keeps going down to these fundamental aspects and it seems to keep going back to the mitochondria and so i know ketosis has a a massive impact on that but where where i'm finding a lot of these chronic diseases is mitochondrial in 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 you know at the base but it's coming from these toxins that we're exposed to or the nutrient deficiencies. Maybe it is from, you know, the anti-nutrients of, of certain plants or the lack thereof in it to begin with. So how have you been able to rationalize this mitochondrial approach, uh, this focus for health? The mitochondria, yeah, it's, it's the name of the game, right? Every cell has these uh, mitochondria. But to your point, the China study was it was also the same book I read in the beginning that that totally duped me. That and uh, Rich Roll's book, I believe it was called like Finding yes. Ultra. I think, yeah, I read those two books, totally duped me. And China study was the actual domino that made me go vegan, <laughs> totally fooled me before I you know, knew how to read studies. So don't be fooled by the China study. Lesson learned there. It's not actually a good study. <laughs> Anyways, um, the mitochondria, yeah. You know, whenever I look at human biology or just think about health in general, I always think about, I, I'm a faith... I'm a faithful man. I believe in God, right? And, and we could substitute that word for whatever you feel comfortable with. But God made the body to thrive. And the number one priority for the human body, the way God built us, is to survive. To thrive, yes, but survival is the name of the game. So the way that we're built, there are things that happen in the body all for the sake of survival. And this relates to the mitochondria, to your question, because different cells have different concentration of mitochondria. For example, most cells have maybe a few hundred to a few thousand mitochondria in a single cell. What is the mitochondria for your audience that are really not sure? I mean, we learned that it's the powerhouse of the cell. It's this this battery pack within the cells that produce energy, and that energy is called ATP. And that's very important because the more energy you produce, the more energy you have, the more energy your cells have, but also it raises your metabolic rate helps your metabolism function better. It's all good things. There's also an intelligence to the mitochondria where it acts like a surveillance system for for threats. And if there's too much stress and threats, the mitochondria will lower energy production all for the sake of survival. So the mitochondria are essential for surviving and for thriving. And when we study the cells that are most needed for surviving and thriving, let's call what those cells are. So the brain cells, the eyeballs, the heart, the ovaries, the testicles, those are the cells that have the most mitochondria, 100,000. Some regions of the brain have over a million. Some regions have over 2 million. And that's how important the mitochondria are because it's most mostly concentrated in the cells that are most needed for survival. So the brain has the most. The brain, of course, you need that to think, to find food, 
to run away from a predator. Like that brain needs to work really well. And then we have the eyes loaded with mitochondria. You need to be able to see, of course, obviously. Then we have the ovaries reproduction. So for example, you compare that to other cells that just need a few hundred because they're not as important. So the mitochondria are the name of the game. And every disease out there pretty much is linked to mitochondrial dysfunction. It's where that mitochondria are not online anymore. They're in a cell danger response. They're producing a lot of free radicals. They're not producing a lot of energy. It's an inflamed cell. So ketones have a really cool relationship with the mitochondria because ketones, there are many benefits to ketones, but one of them, they communicate with the mitochondria. And when you are in a state of ketosis, remember, our ancestors were in a state of ketosis because of famine. They were in a state of ketosis because it was winter and there was no carbs. It usually means famine. Times are tough. Not a bad thing, but that's usually the case back in the day. And we're still kind of hardwired for the old school. So when we are in a state of ketosis, those ketones signal to the mitochondria, times are tough. And that means we need to make sure the mitochondria start reproducing, creating more mitochondria. So it signals mitochondrial biogenesis, which is the creation of new mitochondria. But not only that, there's an intelligence in your body that now looks for mitochondria that are not producing energy, that are highly inflamed. And the body goes through this mitophagy process where it cleans it out. Or if it has determined that mitochondria is not producing energy, then it goes through apoptosis, which is this programmed cell death. All of this is happening, right? It's so cool. So that's why when we look at how much energy a cell produces when it's not in ketosis, when they're burning sugar, it's about 32 to 36 of these ATP energy units. Compare that to a cell that's in ketosis, a mitochondria that's using ketones, it's 120 plus ATP molecules, which is 400% more energy. And it's happening because of the creation of new mitochondria. So stress is what happens and stress is very good when you adapt to it and when you're in ketosis, this is exactly what's happening. The mitochondria are now adapting to that stress. The, the mitochondrial implications that I'm, I'm trying to really wrap my mind around is so, you know, recently we were visited with Dr. Chris Kenobi um, and, and he goes into the, the whole linoleic acid, right? No, the, the omega six component. And so that's been a little bit, uh, challenging to wrap my mind around because on one hand you have you need all these things the the dha the epa the take fish oil right uh and then the linoleic acid is causing a lot of problems but then when you look at really the mitochondria we we actually need so omega sixes so can ben can you can you lay that out a little bit like what because i feel like dr kenobi's right but i think there might be a little bit of nuance there it's a fantastic question such a very important question you're so right dude and I love Dr. Kenobi. I've had him on my podcast last year. He's great. He's, he's done a great job putting industrial seed oils on the map for people to understand like the history of it, correlating it and linking it to so many diseases. He's spot on. Like, this, is where, this is where there's always nuance. And um, the tough part about being in, in this space is like you, you see a 60-second clip on Instagram, Instagram Reels saying how dangerous vegetable oils are. And I'm guilty of having those clips, right? I've had a whole bunch of viral videos say that. But- it's not enough to explain the whole conversation, which is I'm glad we asked the question because just because a fat is linoleic acid or a mega six or a seed oil doesn't make it bad. Uh, to your point, 
Omega-6 that is unadulterated, so a, a healthy omega-6 is the king of that mitochondrial membrane. It's the king of the cell membrane. It is what's needed to actually fix the cell. But the majority of the omega-6 out there, when you go to restaurants and the supermarket, are going to be the adulterated omega-6, meaning they've already heated this oil. They've added chemical detergents and bleach and all these things to hide the smell of it because it's rancid. And then it's in our food supply. And that is bad. That it's oxidized linoleic acid. Takes about 680 days for the half-life of those. They stick around for a long time. They're worse than sugar, worse than smoking. Like I agree to all of that. But then you you can't say that for all omega-6 fats because there are, for example, sunflower oil. If we find a high quality, let's say organic, cold-pressed sunflower oil in a glass bottle and we don't heat it, we use it like as a supplement or a salad dressing or a dip, amazing anti-inflammatory benefits, amazing for the mitochondrial membrane, amazing for this really important fat called cardiolipin, which is this lipid raft that the mitochondria uh, uses for, for, uh, for um, function. Uh, same thing for grapeseed oil, organic, cold press, you're not heating it. Like So it depends on the type of fat, if it was heated. Now, Canola is always bad. Um, soybean is always bad because those are going to be GMO. Uh, even if it's like expeller press, like those are always bad. But there are certain omega-6 fats like phosphatidylcholine, for example, an amazing omega-6 fat that helps support the membrane of the mitochondria, of the cell membrane. So there's always going to be nuance there. Um, but to your question about the fish oil, I am not a fan of fish oil at all. Um, EPA and DHA is very important. Don't get me wrong. But fish oil is even more unstable than a vegetable oil. There's more of these double bonds in fish oil. And even if it's a high-quality fish oil, the amount that people take is absurd. Uh, they're taking one, two, three capsules a day. And guess what? The average of one capsule is about 1,000 milligrams a gram. The brain needs about 7.2 milligrams per day. Um, and people are taking a thousand, like there's a huge mismatch there. So just eat the fish once or twice a week. You'll get enough EPA and DHA. Uh, the body could actually make its own EPA and DHA if you give it the building block. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to follow up to that, but I love the question, my friend. I, th I think it's just kind of a unbelievably important topic. And, and I think it's doing a lot of damage out there because everybody for the most part thinks that taking fish oils is benefiting them. And in reality, I think it might be one of the most damaging things. And so just the the more I get into it, the less supplements I'm actually a, a fan of for, for various reasons. Um, but we we got to pull back and kind of understand what's going on there. The The second side of the mitochondria that I would like to get your, your take on is, uh, so Dr. Laszlo Boros, I think is absolutely incredible. And so he's really brought to light the whole deuterium aspect. And so the electron transfer, transport chain takes place inside the mitochondria and the last stage is the ATP synthase or the little nanomotors. And what Dr. Boros is saying is the deuterium mismatch. So we're getting way too much of it from these processed seed oils, from the diet, from from the fruits. There's a lot of, lot of sources for it, but they're destroying these nanomotors. And he is saying that that very well may be the fundamental problem that's going on is this the destruction of the mitochondrial nanomotors. And, you know, to follow that up, when I asked Dr. Kim Berry about this, he said, you know what, I followed everything that Dr. Boros has done, and he very well may have figured out why keto and carnivore and all these things are working, but it's still a, a theory. 
in his point. Yeah. So what what is your take with with all that? Because I think it goes hand in hand with the omegas, uh, deuterium, and you know we'll get into some more things in a minute. I haven't done enough research on deuterium, deuterium depleted water. I, I do know this. There, uh, there's um, I work with a team, a group of docs, like Dr. Daniel Pompa is my mentor, and then he trains a whole bunch of other doctors in our group. And I think about four or five years ago, we started getting into this uh, deuterium conversation and doing research on it. And I forget the gentleman's name. It was a guy and a gal, but they 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 sent out uh, this deuterium depleted water to a lot of the groups to test out. Some people did 30 days, 60 days. And um, I got to say the results were not good, meaning like nobody noticed the difference drinking the water. And uh, we, we really, after that happened, it really just didn't, there was nothing positive that came out of, and it's just our little experiment. Don't get me wrong. Sure. You could be totally right on. And, and this this could be a really important topic. I'm coming from just my personal experience. So after that, I just never really went down that rabbit hole. Now, maybe now that you're bringing it up and Dr. Ken Berry, who I respect, said it's very valuable. I should do more research into it, but I can't say. Um, I don't know. Uh, this is something I still need to do more research on. Ben, that, you bring up a really good point because something has happened along the way with the whole deuterium topic to where it has turned people off. For one, it's not a popular thing. Um, it's It's hard to talk about. It's hard to understand. I almost feel, and this is just me not knowing, just having a, an assumption. I almost feel like there was some sort of either nefarious or scammy things that were happening around the deuterium depleted water that put the bad taste in everybody's mouth. And I think that you just really laid that out beautifully. And uh, so, what it's my understanding the the mitochondria produces deuterium depleted water. Just don't overload the mitochondria with deuterium, and it creates deuterium depleted water. So I think the the water may be part of the problem in in getting down to what's really going on there. I think it may have actually turned a lot of people off. But I think the, so too. the other yeah. side of that. Like alkaline water, right? Turns people like, off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the the other side of that is the metabolic process produces, you know, waste, right? Like something that we've got to deal with. So Ross, radical oxygen species in there. And so the way to combat that is another topic that I think is so fascinating in melatonin. Mm. And I've, you know, from the, from the cancer angle, there are a lot of people that are using very high dose melatonin uh, for cancer and getting very positive results. Now, the flip side of that uh, is, say, Jack Cruz and and what you you know what Matt has even said with the bioptimizer, who I respect tremendously. So you've got these different camps, right, on the melatonin. What, where, where are you with that? Where, what have you uh, come to the conclusion? At least right now, because we're always learning, always changing. Where, where are you on the melatonin topic? Yeah, it's a good question, and you're right. Like Jack Cruz, really smart guy, very angry but smart guy, brilliant guy. Uh, he's totally against melatonin. I believe Huberman's not big on uh, melatonin. Matt Gallant, not huge on melatonin. But, you know, I got to say, the research is pretty solid on melatonin. Um, first of all, the mitochondria produce melatonin. Um, it's the most powerful antioxidant for the mitochondria. There's only two antioxidants that the mitochondria could use, melatonin and glutathione, that is it. And melatonin is the most powerful one there. There's no negative feedback loop that I've ever come across, and I've asked so many people about this, even Matt Gallant on that interview, nobody has, has found that. Meaning, that, that means like when you take 
because melatonin is a hormone, right? So if you take testosterone or human growth hormone or estrogen, there is a negative feedback loop. Meaning if you take it, your body stops producing it. There's this negative feedback loop. With melatonin, there's no such thing. There's, there's not a process that tells your body stop making it because you're taking it. So uh, that makes me more comfortable using it and trying it out. Now, there are some people that have genetic SNPs that don't do well with melatonin supplementation. Um, so we would have to have them do things to produce the melatonin naturally, which is great. You could do that too. But I look at melatonin supplementation as a valuable tool. Uh, I'm not as bold on it as one of my good friends, Dr. John Laurence, who taught me a lot about melatonin. He He's really bold on it and takes it like for long periods of time. But I, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of taking anything long period of time. I'm always a fan of doing cyclical use with my supplements. There's an art to it. I have done high-dose melatonin. I've done as high as 300 milligrams of melatonin suppository. So Dr. John has the Sandman Max, 300 milligrams, right? And uh, I get great sleep. I wake up feeling fine and great for inflammation, great for when you travel, great for when you're feeling stressed out. But I wouldn't do that long-term, right? And then I'll take oral melatonin, which is very poorly absorbed anyways, but six milligrams, eight milligrams, time to time. But there's a lot of great research. Russell Ryder has probably done the most amount of research on melatonin. So when you ask me where is my stance on it right now, I'm more for it than I am against it. But there's always nuances with everything we speak about. I think I think Jack's point would be right. Uh, I mean, who, who am I to you know, uh, credential wise to to argue with him? But uh, if we were in a perfect world, right? Like if we had the perfect circadian uh, biology, the rhythms were fi- fine. We didn't have all the toxins, the EMF, the the all the things that we can throw at it. Because if we were perfectly healthy, I think there's no need to do it. But I don't think that we necessarily live in a world. And so, you know, doc, Dr. Lawrence is, is coming on next week, and I want to dive into oh, a nice. lot more. But, uh, you know, there's just so many of the people being in, in this is oh, I really wanted to ask you. There's so many very intelligent people that have their hearts, I believe, in the right place, yet they disagree passionately about these topics. And so trying to figure out what is right can be very challenging. So how how do you do that with talking to as many experts and stuff as you know you do, I do? Coming to to a conclusion can be very challenging. How how do you do that? I just finished a book today. It's going to answer your question. I just finished a book. I was actually just um, speaking of Jack Cruz. I was in my backyard getting sun, listening to the book. No glasses on, <laughs> shirt off. Uh, Move your DNA by Katie Bowman. Uh, just finished it on Audible. Great book. Uh, I know it came out a few years ago, but she read it. She's super funny. And at the end, she shared something that is perfect to your question because she shared that when you think about an elephant and let's say different people get their hands on different parts of the elephant. You have the trunk, you have the tail, you have the the stomach. You're going to have a different feel and an idea of how that how you would express that elephant, right? So the person who grabbed the tail will say, this elephant is long and, and rigid. The other person who grabbed... Its stomach will say it's big and wide, and you'll have them argue on Facebook saying, no, this is the way the elephant feels. No, this is the way the elephant feels. But they're grabbing different parts. That's all they've seen. But when you think about the holistic approach, it's all that put together. So everybody has a different part to the puzzle, to that elephant. 
And it's not just that one thing, it's putting it all together and then applying it and see what's working for you, what doesn't really work for you, and you start to unlearn and relearn, et cetera. So I thought that analogy was perfect because that's the holistic viewpoint. That's where they've put their hands on the elephant, per se. So Dr. John Laurence, I love him. He's put his hand on the elephant that talks about melatonin and methylene blue. And it's great. Like That's what he really has a feel for, right? That feel, that part of the elephant. Then you have other people like me who really has put my hand on the elephant that talks about fasting and keto and going in and out of ketosis, right? Doesn't make me right and him wrong or vice versa or her wrong. It just means that's where we have our hand on the elephant. But we have to understand that there's different parts to that elephant and we have to be open to all of it. That's a beautiful analogy. Thank thank you for sharing that because that's it really is something that I – have tried to rationalize how can so many people can I do I believe can be right you know whether whether it's Dr. Boros or you know Morley Robbins he brings up some incredible stuff around yeah. copper right like uh, the melatonin with what Dr. Ryder uh, has put out like he he recently last year did a uh, a study with uh, stage four cancer and and melatonin supplementation that it's just beautiful it's like it's it's right there and so. It's just I feel like a lot of them can be right uh, in that it's almost our our job to bring things together instead of being over divisive. Amen to that, bro. Amen to that. Exactly. You know, we have to be open to new ideas because you're right. You see somebody like Morley Robbins and you see other people who are like pro vitamin D, pro, you know, iron, whatever it is. And they're all brilliant people and they completely disagree, right? Even me, I love keto. I love carnivore. I love these metabolic tools. And I'm friends with guys like Ken Berry and Dr. Bickman and Bickman endorsed my book and Dr. Fung. But it doesn't mean we agree to everything. Like I don't believe in long-term continuous ketosis personally. I think it's important to achieve metabolic flexibility and go in and out. But Ken Berry thinks we should all be in continuous ketosis, and I respect that. So what, what I tell people, what I tell my, my personal community is that, look, I know that there's a lot of smart, brilliant people in the health space, keto space, fasting space, whatever it is. It could be really overwhelming and confusing for you to understand which approach is right for you, especially when you have completely different ideas from people that know each other and respect each other. And you were, so how do you, how do you decipher all of that? So my advice to them, and I would share this advice to your audience today, find maybe two or three people in the space that you resonate with their personality. There's like just, you, you connect with them. There's this vibe. There's something there. You like their personality, their hypothesis and their theories make sense to you. And then you go all in with them. And it could be one person, but up to three people max. And you go all in with them how you feel, look at glucose and ketones, maybe get lab work, give it a good 90 days. And then you could say, all right, Ben's Keto Flex, it worked really well for me. I actually feel good. I don't feel restricted. Uh, all of my inflammatory markers dropped. Like, I think I'm going to stick with Ben. Or you'll say, Ben's approach really didn't work for me. I have sugar addiction. And I need, actually need to be long-term ketosis. So I need to find somebody else who specializes in sugar addiction, right? So you want to be able to do that and experiment because nobody could argue your own experiment. Nobody could argue your own results and how you feel. And that is the ultimate test. And that's what I would share with your audience. Don't get overwhelmed. Find one to three people max and do your own experiment and see what happens. Beautiful. Yeah, the information overload is uh, 
it's exhausting. Uh, it, it really yeah. is. So I think that is a phenomenal recommendation. So, all right, brother, what's what's next? What's the new book you're working on? What uh, what what's next? Yeah, when is this going to be released? By the way, this this conversation we're having. So be a, a few weeks at at the earliest. Okay, so I guess I could share it here. I mean, um, it's about to get finalized in the next few days, but. It's not public yet, but by the time this comes out, it'll be public. So uh, I guess I'm sharing it with you right now, my friend. Uh, first time ever, Logan. I have not shared this. My mom doesn't even know this. I'm going to see her tomorrow for dinner. But here's the news. I, um, I'm writing a new book with Hay House. I just got a big offer from Hay House to write this book called Metabolic Freedom. And uh, it will be out in the summer of 2025. The book is going to talk all about the problem with metabolic dysfunction and disease, the top five things that have contributed to disease out there of the metabolism, dysfunction of the metabolism. And then we get into how ketosis will support the metabolism. Fasting, smart exercise, certain exercises and doing things the right way, smart biohacks that I've learned along the way. And then my favorite chapter is going to be the one about your thoughts and how your thoughts could influence your health or create disease. And then it's going to be tied all together with a 30-day plan to achieving metabolic freedom. So metabolic freedom is like metabolic flexibility, just a different level where you're not handcuffed to snacking, you're not handcuffed to eating every two to three hours, you're not handcuffed to blood sugar roller coaster spikes and et cetera, but you achieve optimal health. So I'm very excited about it. Like that's going to be the main focus for me the next 12 months. I'm dialing in to getting this book out there. I want it to be a book that's going to be around for so many years. And most importantly, I want people to pick it up, read it, and then take action and change their life. I'm so excited for that. That is, that's phenomenal because that, Ben, that's addressing the root. That's addressing the root cause of what's going on. Um, as, as far as that last section with that mindset, have you, have you read any of Jason Redmond's stuff? No. Should I? It, Yes, I, it's highly, highly recommend. Just uh, I, I've drawn a blank on on the name of his book, but it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, he was a war veteran that was injured and he just talks about it's all mindset. It's every bit of it. And it is beautiful. So I think I think that could be maybe a little nugget that you, you would enjoy. I'm looking it up right now. Is it called Overcome? Crush Adversity with the Leadership Techniques of America's Toughest Warriors? Yeah, it's a red, it's a red book. That's it. Yep, that's it. Okay, that's it. cool. Thank you for that Phenomenal. recommendation. I'm putting this in my cart right now. Thank you, bro. <laughs> You're welcome, buddy. Now I wanna I wanna see your you you succeed even even more. Uh on that resonance. Uh, that you spoke of. You're definitely somebody that I can relate to. Uh see the parallels, always questioning, learn from our own uh, you know mishap of being dogmatic because I was I went vegan for a while too I, I bought in <laughs> hook line and sinker so I understood when you were going through that and just I think the more that we learn the more we realize we don't know and have have to just continue that process of learning so just thank you brother for for the time and and the the effort you put out because it takes a lot to do do what you do Thank you, bro. No, thank you. And, and uh, Alvin, Toffler, uh, Alvin Toffler said it best. He said, the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. So just like you, my friend, constantly unlearning and relearning. And kudos to you and your research and your podcast and what you're doing and being there for your son and 
not accepting the conventional approach to what they wanted to do with your son. And now look at your son, 10 years old, five years ago, he was you know, diagnosed. It's just amazing. I love hearing stories like that, man. There, there's just so much hope. I think that's where we've got to come together and just, uh, it's okay to disagree. Let's just try to find the truth and, and just keep trucking along and try to make the world a better place. So I've uh, actually pulled this from you, that final question. Um, <laughs> what what does prosperity mean to you? In, in, in Ben Azadi's words, what is prosperity? Ooh, prosperity is our birthright. Prosperity is everywhere. It's a choice. It really is. We could see scarcity and, and fear, uh, which is the opposite of prosperity, but prosperity and fear and scarcity both require us to believe in something we really can't see. Uh, it's really a choice. Um, so prosperity is a choice that I make because I know that God has built us all to be to prosper, to have abundance. It is simply our birthright. God wants to uh, not do for us what he wants to do through us. And prosperity is the way to do that. So I see prosperity everywhere. I see it in this microphone. I see it in this computer screen. I see it in these lights here. I see it in your studio. Prosperity is everywhere because I choose to see it. I love that, my friend. I absolutely love that. Um, I'm going to answer your question on on gratitude. I, I'm uh, truly, truly grateful for the hardships because I think that's where we grow the most. As uh, you know, Napoleon Hill says, with every adversity comes the seed of an equal or greater opportunity. And so, again, uh, you know, your hardships, your struggle got you to where you are. Same. And uh, I'm just I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the time here again. Uh, so thank you, Ben. Amen, Logan. That's exactly right. If you didn't have the struggle, how would you know how good it would feel when you had the pleasure and the good stuff, right? The more you struggle, the more the, when you have success, it, it feels really, really good, right? So you got to get the both perspectives of things. If, you, if everything's always going your way, it's, uh, you're going to become numb to that. But when you have the challenges and then you have the success, you compare both and you're like, this feels really good. So to your point, I agree with that. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Logan. Thank you for joining us on Sowing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sowingprosperity.com.